You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Our God, we thank you for saving us through your Son, Jesus. We pray that you would humble our hearts so that we may listen intently at what your word says. Amen. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Or what does it mean to follow anyone, for that matter? Uh, My LinkedIn tells me that I follow SAS, Monash University, GBST, GQR, Global Markets, and many other random letters. I don't really follow them. I don't even know what those letters stand for or how I started following them in the first place. And I heard uh, it's a similar story with Instagram. But nowadays, following is nothing more than just another click of a button. Is it the same with Jesus? Can I find Jesus on LinkedIn and just hit follow? You see, in today's passage, we see Mark explore the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And as I was reading through today's passage, I thought I had it easy because this passage looks a lot like deja vu. We've heard it all before. This is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death. The disciples, they've already been rebuked for being prideful and seeking greatness. And Jesus, he's already healed a blind man. But today's passage is greater than the sum of its parts. And as we start to zoom out from those individual elements, we see that Mark isn't just repeating himself. He's unpacking that question. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And he does that by showing us who and how. Who we're following, the true king, and how to follow by contrasting the disciples with the blind beggar. And those points make up the structure of today's sermon. Firstly, the true king, 32 to 34, and then following the king, disciples versus Bartimaeus. And finally, we'll wrap up with a bit of application. But firstly, the true king. If we want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, a great place to start is getting to know who he is. So let's zoom in and have a look at the first section. Verse 32 says, They were walking on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. You see, as we've progressed through Mark chapters 8 to 10, we've inched ever closer to Jerusalem. But it is a bit strange that the disciples are astonished. I mean, what are they astonished at? Was it that Jesus was walking ahead of them? Could it be his kind of speed? Was he like speed walking his way to Jerusalem? And I think verse 33 to verse 34 gives us a bit of a clue. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. You see, as Jesus closes in on Jerusalem, his predictions are getting clearer and clearer, even more unbelievable. See, before this, Jesus had never mentioned that Jerusalem would be the place of his death. The disciples probably thought that Jerusalem would be the place of his inauguration where he finally becomes king, where he gives it to the Romans and takes back control of God's city, Jerusalem, where he finally reigns victorious. Instead, Jesus' prophecy sounds a bit like defeat, that the enemy he should be conquering 
would actually end up humiliating him and actually killing him. It's not something that you want to hear from someone you've given up everything to follow. Moreover, look at what leads to that treatment in verse 33. It's the betrayal of the people that Jesus came to save. The chief priests and the scribes. They're the pastors and the bishop of Judaism. They're the ones who supposedly uphold God's law. They're the examples of holiness and righteousness. The exact people who should be embracing a Messiah. But instead, they hate Jesus. They despise him so much that they would rather work together with the Romans, the powers who oppressed them. Jews and Romans, they hated each other. They never united over anything. But they're uniting against Jesus. And to top it all off, after being put to death, Jesus says he'll rise up. No wonder they were astonished. And when we combine this vivid picture with Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, having dedication and unwavering resolve to march towards his utter doom, who in the world would, be, who would want to be subject to that? Why would anyone want to do that? I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it easy to breeze over a passage like this. I mean, it's the third prediction. And as a Christian, I, I already know how the story goes. But that attitude just dismisses how dedicated Jesus was to his humiliation. One of the questions I've been asking myself during this whole series is what does it look like to have godly ambition? And it only struck me now that the clearest example was right here in front of me. It's Jesus. Jesus made a beeline straight towards his doom for our sake. Jesus' ambition was to give it all for us. And I love the way the Philippians puts it. Philippians 2 says he gave up his heavenly positions his heavenly comforts, his godness, to come down and live as a man. He humbled or humiliated himself to the point of a human death. If you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, then you need to see the true king. And in come James and John. As blind as a bat and subtle as a sledgehammer. It's always helpful when you're undertaking something new to have an example of how not to do something. And in verse 35, we see an almost childish request. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. Uh, some of you may know I have objectively proven the cutest nephews and nieces in the world. Uh, and they'd run up to my dad, who's called Gong Gong. Gong Gong means uh, grandpa. And they would say, Gong Gong, I have a, something to ask, but you have to promise to say yes. And whenever you get asked that, you know it's going to be something cheeky. You know that their parents have said no already. Now they're seeking the weakest link to get some sort of approval. And ten times out of ten in my household, it's, it's always gong gong. Because if they go to popo, which is uh, grandma, they know they're headed for doom and they're, they're not Jesus. So every time, they'll walk away with a huge grin and a bunch of candy from gong gong. But these, they're not my cute nephews and nieces. They're, these are grown men. And they're not asking for candy. They're asking for glory. And not just any glory. They're asking to be the greatest of the great, to be the right and the left hand of God's chosen king. And Jesus responds in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In other words, Jesus is saying, are you ready to follow me where I need to go? To go through the horrors that I will go through. I said I'd be ridiculed, spat on, whipped and then killed. The phrase, drinking the cup, is an arrow straight back towards the Old Testament and it represents God's wrath 
and judgment that he has stored up against all the wickedness of the world. The references, references to that is Psalm 75 and Isaiah 51. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see it's a cup that even Jesus himself finds difficult to swallow. James, John, are you able to go through with that? Are you able to be fully immersed or baptized into that suffering? Are you able to follow me? And with their hearts fixated on glory, they respond, Yep. And Jesus, despite their ignorance, answers with the patience of a loving parent. And in verse 39, he's, he's actually prophesying for them. He sh- shares that both of them will end up following him. It's great news. Later on, I'll share exactly how that prophecy plays out. And spoiler alert, it's, it's not what they bargained for. In fact, the whole thing was a bit of a red herring. Because unfortunately, that's not the way they get the glory that they were after. In verse 40, Jesus says, it's already been decided. So no greatness, nor proximity to me, nor childish strong arm is the way to get that glory in heaven. God has already prepared it, and Jesus is happy to submit. And so James and John, they went back, tails between their legs, only to be met with a group of indignant disciples. I'm just imagining them there, like cracking their knuckles, ready for like a punch-on. They were livid at James and John. And the truth is, they were more mad that they didn't get there first. And before a fight could break out, Jesus corrects them all in 42 to 45. And see, we see that it's not just a problem with James and John. None of the disciples understood greatness in the kingdom. It's no wonder Jesus is repeating himself. They still thought greatness was a position of power, of, of dominance. But Jesus says it's a position of weakness. It's the opposite of service to others. And this new kingdom is going to operate like no other. But Jesus, he's not asking for anything that he wouldn't do. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this gives us the why of Jesus' death. Jesus gave his life as a ransom. Now, a ransom was a payment to a captor to release a slave. And a slave were not employees. They weren't paid. Instead, they were paying off something that they owed. More often than not, they couldn't pay it off. So they would work their whole lives. And they, when, when they would die, they would pass on that debt to their children, enslaving them as well. They were trapped, they and their family. Nothing but a ransom payment would set them free. But why is Jesus implying that we're enslaved? I mean, looking around, it doesn't doesn't look like you guys are enslaved. But Jesus gives us a harsh reality in John 8. He says that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And if sin is acting like God doesn't exist, is disobeying Him actively and passively, running away from Him, if, if you're running away from the God, Creator God, source of all life, where else is there to go but death? And that's what the price of our sin is. It's our lives. So actually in this short one-liner, we see a snapshot of the gospel. Jesus' life for ours, a ransom payment to set us free from the slavery of sin and the death that ensues. See, Jesus, in his true greatness, came not to be served, but to serve. But the disciples were too proud. They were too consumed with worldly greatness. They 
pigeonholed Jesus and they couldn't see him for who he truly was. They were blind. But where the disciples failed, our next section shows someone who gets it right. In verse 46 to 52, we see Jesus in Jericho. Now, Jericho is only a couple of miles out from Jerusalem. He's on the home stretch. And we see a large crowd gathered. But Bartimaeus, a blind beggar at the side of the street, is singled out. Now, not many people's names make it into the Bible. It's not entirely clear why Bartimaeus is this, but perhaps he went on to become a prominent member of the church. His name was probably familiar to the original readers. But nevertheless, though blind, Bartimaeus sees Jesus clearer than anyone. Some of you may know this, but uh, Bartimaeus and I have something in common. Um, I, I suffer from colorblindness. Now, I know no need to shed a tear for me, no need for a pity party. You can, you can pray for me if you wish, but not necessary. I mean, technically, I can, I can see 99% of colors. Bartimaeus, he can't see anything. But sometimes people, they make fun of me. I guess, I guess he's probably outcasted and looked down upon. He's probably the lowest of the low. I mean, the other week we looked at children as being an economic debt weight. But come to think of it, Bartimaeus is probably an economic black hole because what could he do to contribute to community? At least children could grow up and pay taxes. And he's a beggar. He, he takes your after-tax income. He's probably despised and disrespected. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop comparing myself to him. But in verse 48, it's no wonder that when he's shouting to Jesus, people are not just telling him to be quiet. They're warning him. It's almost threatening. But that doesn't stop him. He yells all the more. I don't think we can accuse him for wanting to be great in the world. He's liked by no one and respected by no one. And long story short, Jesus heals him. And he heals him on account of his faith. But how was Bartimaeus' faith displayed? See, on the face of it, Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. But underneath, he's a bit of a theologian. He says three things that show that he sees Jesus clearer than anyone. Firstly, he calls Jesus the son of David. Son of David is a reference to the Old Testament. King David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He led them to prosperity and greatness. And God had promised that there was going to be one from his line who's going to be even greater than David. And more than that, who would reign forever. Bartimaeus recognizes that this future king is Jesus. Secondly, Bartimaeus shouts, have mercy on me. And this echoes how King David used to pray to God. For example, look at Psalm 6 verse 2. In fact, it wasn't just David, but also how all of Israel was to approach God. And this is Bartimaeus' same approach to Jesus. Bartimaeus may as well be saying, Jesus is God, the one who provides mercy. And just like when David is asking for healing in Psalm uh, Psalm 6, Bartimaeus asks to see. Now I know on the face of it, it just looks like any other request. But in Isaiah 35, it prophesies of a future time of glory, of prosperity, of peace and protection. And more specifically, a time where the blind will see and the deaf will hear. And so by asking Jesus for sight, Bartimaeus is declaring that this time has come. God's salvation is here. 
So in those three short statements, Bartimaeus is declaring Jesus is king, Jesus is God, and Jesus is saviour. It's ironic. Though he's blind, Bartimaeus sees more than the disciples. And in verse 52, after Jesus heals him, Bartimaeus could find no better use of his sight than by immediately following Jesus. Isn't it beautiful that someone who has been so afflicted, so marginalized, who might have every reason to blame God for his ailments, all of that simply fades away once he sees his true king. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the text, so let me give you three things to chew on for application. Number one, see the heart of your true king. And I'm going to split this into two. Firstly, see his heart for you. See, today's passage, it shows us a king who is determined to give his all for you no matter what the cost. And secondly, see his heart for others. He's the kind of king who has a grand plan but would pause to serve a blind beggar, to serve the lowest of the low. Does your heart feel the same way towards those who are considered low? See the heart of your true king. Secondly, don't pigeonhole Jesus. We need to see Jesus for who he really is, not who we want him to be. The disciples, they were blinded by their selfish ambition and pigeonholed Jesus. In their pride, they thought they deserved glory and greatness. But if we want to see Jesus for who he truly is, we need to be more like Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus in humility shouts, have mercy on me. It's an admission that he doesn't deserve anything. He knows his place before God. Uh, back in uni, I was part of a Christian club called uh, Power to Change. And every year we would go to schoolies and, and preach the gospel. And it was as challenging and as hard as it sounds, but very, very worth it. Um, but there was one girl who was lovely and, and not drunk. And she professed to be uh, a Christian. So we discussed her faith. And somehow or other, uh, our, our conversation turned Turned to hell. It didn't, it didn't turn bad. It, we just started talking about hell. Um, and she told me that she doesn't believe in hell. I mean, how can a loving God send people to hell? It's a question that I think a lot of people have. But whilst she was lovely, she didn't realize she was pigeonholing God into her definition of love. And you definitely wouldn't have picked her as being prideful. But she was quick to dismiss anything outside of her definition. The warning here is to see Jesus for who he truly is, not who we want him to be. So when you're reading the Bible or or listening to a sermon on a topic that you struggle with, or maybe it's a topic that you already know, both of them might lead you to dismiss the text. Ask God for help. Admit that you struggle with the topic. And most importantly, ask him to help you see. Approach him in humility. And don't pigeonhole Jesus. Finally, number three, redefine greatness. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that greatness in the kingdom is different to greatness in the world. Worldly greatness is domineering. It's asserting authority. Kingdom greatness is servanthood, being a slave to all. Which means they're not just different, they're completely opposite. And if it's the complete opposite, that means that one is always at the cost of the other. 
It's impossible to have both. Now you might find it hard with, uh, with relating to speaking power, but examining our ambitions and look, thinking of our 10-year goals, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I think those show us what we think a great life is. It might be owning a house. It might be having a, a job. It might be not having a job at all. It might be living off your investments, having a partner, having a family. All of them good things. None of them are great. And whilst not domineering, you are still seeking power and comfort over your life. And treasuring such things leads to the same attitudes as the disciples. Selfish ambition, jealousy and pride. You begin to compare yourself to people who have things that you don't have. Or vice versa. Using possessions as a marker for greatness. But greatness in the kingdom is being a servant to all. And our ambitions shouldn't be how we climb to the top, but how we stoop to the bottom and serve all. We need to redefine greatness. We need to reshape our ambitions. Now before we close, I wanted to circle back to verse 39 where Jesus prophesies to James and John. You see, after the resurrection of Jesus, James and John, they went on to spread the gospel and they suffered greatly for it. James, he he went to Spain and gave the gospel over there. And he was beheaded for his faith. He was the first martyr. And John, he was one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, but was eventually exiled and boiled in oil for his faith. It's certainly not what they expected when they said, we are able. But they ended up being far greater than they could ever imagine. James and John, they saw the heart of Jesus. They stopped pigeonholing him, and they redefined greatness. And instead of approval and respect that they would have gotten from being great in the world, they got the approval of God, the creator of the entire universe. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Why don't we pray? Lord, we humbly come to you with nothing in our hands. No amount of riches, nor intelligence, nor greatness is what you require. In our blindness, Lord, help us to see. And help us to take you at your word. Give us the strength and faith to forgo worldly greatness. Amen.